Well, good morning. Welcome to the last week of our summer series. This is it. We won't be back next week. If you show up, you'll be alone. Well, you may not be alone. There, there may be a couple of you, but uh, I will not be here. And so um, we'll be done this week. And then we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to get ready to go to Brazil in the uh, first part of August. So we're preparing for that and then trying to get the Exodus series ready, which will begin the first week of September. So that's kind of where we're going. But um, we'll be officially off until September. So hopefully you can uh, find uh, something to do and you'll be in your, your Bibles. But uh, if you need any ideas, I, I got plenty. So let me pray for us and we're going to jump into uh, the life of Daniel. Father, we come to you this morning, and I'm, I'm grateful for these men, uh, Lord, just to come together and study your word together is just a pleasure for me, and I thank you for them, thank you for their faithfulness, and I pray as we unpack the life of this incredible man that we would not worship him and not try to emulate his life, but that we would understand that it's his love for you, his understanding of your love for him, his reverence for you, his fear of you, all those things that we've talked about for weeks now are what set him apart as a godly man. And it's that that we want to pursue, the life of godliness. Um, we want to be godly men. And so, Father, would you show us what you want us to see in the life of this man so that it might drive us to a closer relationship with you. And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we've, we've looked at Nebuchadnezzar last week. And Nebuchadnezzar is kind of the, the odd guy out in the sense of that he's not a godly man. He, he's not intended to be a godly man, but he did show us some pretty interesting things about pride. Well, we're going to look at kind of the opposite of him in the life of Daniel. Their lives obviously overlap, and so we're going to be looking at uh, several chapters in Daniel. We're also going to be looking at the book of Jeremiah today, so we're going to kind of be going back and forth as we look at the life of Daniel. When I think about Daniel, um, I, I think of somebody who I can't relate to. Uh, Daniel's one of those characters in the scriptures who is almost so perfect that he's out there. I, I, I just, I look at his life and there's nothing in the scriptures that I've ever found that reveals anything negative about him. Uh, he, he never seems to make a mistake. He never seems to sin. He never seems to struggle. And I know that's not true. It's, it's not shown, but he's a human just like you're a human and I'm a human. He has a sin nature or had a sin nature just like we do. But that's not what's shown to us. And so if we're not careful, we can put Daniel up on a pedestal and almost worship Daniel. And that's not what we're to do. I think the thing that we want to gather from his life is that, and what amazes me about him is that he's one of the characters in Scripture where we get to see his whole life, virtually his whole life. It begins at the age of 15. It's going to end in his 80s. And we get to see all these different phases of his life that show that throughout his life, he was sold out to God. He was committed to God. And, and he was determined to live for God in spite of the fact that he's living in very difficult circumstances. This is another reason why we can relate to, to Daniel is that Daniel's living in, in a less than ideal environment. He's living in Babylon. From the, the time of he's 15, when he's taken captive, all the way until he dies, He's living in a decadent, immoral country, surrounded by things that are ungodly, as we looked about at last week in his life. And we know the story of his life where he refuses to obey 
the king and worship the king and worship his decrees. And instead, he bows down before his God. And we're going to look at this in further detail in just a second. And as a result of that, he's thrown in the lion's den. We're all familiar with that story, right? If you went to Sunday school as a kid, you heard the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And it's interesting that we've turned this into a Sunday school story. And when I was growing up, it was a story of be like Daniel. Um, Every kid was told, at least when I went to Sunday school, is that you need to learn to be like Daniel. And I don't think that's the point of the story is to emulate Daniel, but to understand the God who Daniel worshiped. What possessed him to, to do this, to say no to the king and literally get thrown into a den of lions, trusting that God would save him. And I think he went into that not knowing whether God really would or not, but he put his life at risk in order to be obedient to God. And out of that, there came this poem. And I remember years ago when my kids were little at, here at Christ Chapel, they, they went through a Sunday school series, and it, it was an ongoing series called Dare to Be a Daniel. And it was based on this poem. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Really rhymes well, it's really pithy, it's memorable. Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them, the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band. Now, what's wrong with this? <laughs> yeah, you're worshiping Daniel and his little band, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abed- Abednego. And again, it, I wouldn't say that's a sin, but I think we're teaching our children the wrong point of the story. Who's the hero of the story in the life of Daniel? It's God, right? It's the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And yet, if we're not careful, we teach our kids to, if you'll just act this way and do these things, you'll be like Daniel. And that may or may not be true, right? You, you could do a lot of these things and not necessarily be like Daniel or be a godly man. So, We want to look a little bit deeper. So here's one of the things that jumps out at me. This is God speaking through the prophet of Ezekiel. Listen to what he says. Son of man, suppose the people of a country were to sin against me, and I lifted my fist to crush them, cutting off their food supply and sending a famine to destroy both people and animals. So, hey, Ezekiel, prophet of God, consider this. Now, what does Ezekiel know? God's talking about his people, the people of Israel. But he goes on and says, Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there, their righteousness would save no one but themselves, says the sovereign Lord. What's the point of this? Ezekiel, like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, like all of the prophets, is speaking to the people of Israel and Judah on behalf of God about their sin. And we looked at this last week, their sin of pride, their sin of disobedience and arrogance and we want to rule our own lives. And so he says, if I tell these people, this country, unnamed country, but Ezekiel knows who he's talking about. If I tell them that I'm going to lift my fist to crush them and three different individuals, Noah, Daniel, and Job stood up and were there, it wouldn't do any good. Which reminds me of the situation when Abraham found out that God we're sending angels to Sodom to destroy the city. And he says, what if there's 50 righteous? What if there's 40 righteous? What if there's 30 righteous? All the while thinking of who? His nephew Lot. 
in the hopes that God would spare that city. And what did God say? If I find 10 righteous people in that city, I will spare it. How many did he find? One. And he didn't spare it. So God says, if I find these three guys in that city, it won't do that city any good. What does this say about these three guys? Well, they're righteous. They're, they're godly. They're good. But their righteousness would only save themselves. And the reason I look at this is because it, it accentuates just how wicked the people of Israel really are that God says even these three godly righteous men would not save the people of Israel if they were living in the midst of them at the moment God comes to crush them. Here's here's the thing that that really has hit me in, in preparing this lesson is that just like godliness and pride can't coexist, worldliness and godliness don't mix. We try to mix them, right? We, we try to say that I'm godly, but I want to live worldly. And it can be very subtle. And let's face it, we live in the world. We're stuck here. We can't get out of it. We can't leave it. So we're here, and it's so easy to, to give in to the pressures to be like the world, to live like the world. And yet if you want to do that, you can't be godly at the same time. Chuck Colson says this, a second and even greater threat to the church's independence is the one that sidles in the door on Sunday morning, unnoticed because it wears a familiar face. It's the subtle, gradual acceptance of cultural values and practices. Now, he's no longer with us, but this is a prophetic statement because it's so true, it's still true, right? That if we're not careful, that we can bring our worldliness into the church on Sunday. How do we do that? We can do it with an obsession over the way we look, the way we dress, the way we think. It's more about us than it is about God. Uh, I know there are probably people in this room just like me who you go to worship and they don't sing the songs you like. And so you get upset that I don't like that music and I didn't like that song and I didn't feel like I could worship and and you walk out upset all the while forgetting the fact that you didn't come there to be entertained you came there to supposedly worship and you've let worldliness your desires take over and destroy your ability to worship God he goes on and says accommodation always dulls the gospel sharp edges What the church needs most desperately is holy fear. We've talked about that now for six weeks. The passion to please God more than the culture and the community in which we spend these few short years. Man, we are obsessed, whether we realize it or not, or want to admit it or not, that we want to please the culture. And I know you may say, well, no, I don't. I can't stand our culture. I don't like anything about our culture. Our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. But if we're not careful. And if we don't take stock almost every day, there are things that creep into our lives that show that we have more fear of the culture, more reverence for the culture than we do for God, because we've accommodated. And that's really what the story of Daniel is all about. It's about the fine art of compromise. We don't see it in his life. But you got to keep in mind, he's one of tens of thousands of Hebrews living where? In Babylon. And he is almost like when we looked at Noah, that Noah was the last man standing, right? God looks around and he only sees one righteous man left on the earth. When he looks at Babylon, he sees 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that doesn't mean there weren't other righteous people, but they're in the minority because most of the people who were exiled to Babylon have long given up on Yahweh. They're no longer really worshiping Yahweh. They have compromised their convictions, and they've given in to the world. The word compromise simply means to make a shameful or disreputable concession as in your principles. Now, that's a modern-day definition, but it's just as applicable to the situation back in Daniel's day. When you give in and you compromise your convictions, what convictions were they supposed to have? Well, Yahweh is the only one true God. The law is to be obeyed. Reverence is to be given to him and to no one or anything else. All of those things had been compromised as the longer they stayed in this place called Babylon. See, here's what you know and I know. The culture in which we live demands that we compromise, demands that we cave into their convictions, demands that we give up on what we think we believe. Whatever truth we think we know is wrong according to our culture, and they demand that you acquiesce and that you accommodate and that you give in. It's everywhere. And we face it every stinking day. And, and some of us in the room who are older are, are either we're just so cranky and old that we just refuse to give in. We're that stubborn. We're like, well, I'm not going to do that. No, I'd rather die. But the thing that our younger generations, my adult kids who are in their 20s and 30s, and I have two that are now in their 40s, They're struggling with this. They are bombarded daily with compromise, compromise, compromise. Give in to the culture. Well, guess who went through that as well? So did Daniel. Daniel was constantly bombarded. This guy worked for the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's bombarded daily. He's surrounded by those who believe what the king believes, and he's being pressured to compromise every day. And so are we. What are we supposed to compromise everything, our convictions, our morals, our standards, compromise on the word of God. Well, that's not what that means. I was listening to a podcast coming in today and just how we are being told that um, the word of God is not really the inerrant word of God. It was inspired by God, but it was written by men and therefore it is flawed and it can be interpreted any of a number of ways. And that's why you're seeing even churches that are now preaching and teaching things that are contrary to what the church has believed for thousands of years. Why? Because of compromise, because of pressure from the culture. And if we're not careful, we're going to even compromise the gospel. This is what we face. You may not feel it, you may not realize it, but that's really what the world is out to do. Because who does the world answer to? The enemy. What's the enemy's main criteria. What's his mission on earth? It's to destroy the gospel, to rob the gospel of its meaning, to distract us. You know, Satan isn't really interested in you worshiping him. That's not his goal. He doesn't mind if you worship God or you worship Jesus, just as long as it's not the God and the Jesus of the Bible. It's a God and a Jesus of your own making, your own definition. 
He loves the fact that there are churches filled with people who don't really believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and they're all over the place, and don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It's just a kind of a blueprint for living life. It's a self-help manual. He loves that because it makes people feel like they're doing the right thing when in reality they're doing the wrong thing. They have compromised. See, we're, we're to be in the world and yet not part of it, but what's happened is we've become in the world and of it. we become like the world when we've been called to be agents of change. Now, none of this is new to anybody in the room. This is not like, man, I never knew that. We all know that's our job, right? We know it from the scriptures, that we exist. We're here on this planet to be agents of change, positive change in a world that desperately needs it. What did Jesus say? You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? The answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. You can't make unsalty salt salty again. It will be thrown out, trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. How stupid would that be? Why do you light it and then hide it? See, all of this is intended to get the people's attention. And who's he talking to? This is the Sermon on the Mount, right? And he's talking to an audience of Jews He's not yet died. He's not yet gone to the cross. He's not yet made provision for salvation. And he's telling them, this is how you are supposed to live, but the only way you can live it is through me, with my help and with the power of the Holy Spirit. But he says, what good is unsalty salt? What good is a light hidden under a basket? We are to be agents of change. Yet some in the church today have lost their saltiness. How? Dilution. You know, there's only a few ways that salt can lose its saltiness. Either it can be exposed to the sun and it loses its chemical essence, or it can be diluted in water. It can be so diluted that it's no longer salty anymore. You add enough water to salt, and pretty soon the salt no longer has any impact. And so we've become diluted by the world. We've allowed our light to be dimmed and diminished by a constant bombardment of darkness. It doesn't mean your light is any less bright than it was. It's that you are so surrounded by darkness and you've not associated, and I have not associated with enough other people whose lights burn brightly that we make any difference. We've grown dim and we're no longer impacting the world like we should. Martin Niemöller was a priest during the early stages of the Nazi movement, the late, mid to late 1930s. And he stood against them. And he says this, this is written in 1937. Now think about this. This is when they reached their apex of power. And it says, the problem with which we have to deal is how to save the Christian community at this moment when the very, from the very danger of being thrown into the same pot as the world. What was the world in his day, the Nazis, rising to power, grabbing control of the the country of Germany, and pressing their worldview on everyone, including the church. It must keep itself distinct from the rest of the world by virtue of its saltiness. How does Christ's community differ from the world? Great question. 
We have come through a time of peril, the rise of the Nazis, and we are not finished with it yet. When we were told everything will be quite different, when you as a church cease to have such an entirely different flavor, when you cease to practice preaching, which which is the opposite of what the world around you preaches, what's he saying? They are being told by Hitler and the Nazis, you can preach, you just need to preach a doctrine and a gospel that resonates with what we believe. What does that mean? Compromise. Say what we want you to say, and you can keep preaching. Don't say what we say, and you will be shut down. If not shut down, like Bonhoeffer, put to death. That's the risk they run, and this is 1937, right? He goes on. You really must suit your message to the world. This is what the Nazis were telling the churches in Germany. You really must bring your creed into harmony with the present. Then you will again become influential and powerful. Dear brethren, that means the salt loses its savor. He's writing it to his fellow priests and pastors at a time when they're being literally pressured with the pain of death if you do not compromise your convictions and say what we want you to say. I really believe that's, the, that's where we live right now. That's what the culture is basically telling the church. You will become irrelevant if you don't come in line with our doctrine. If you don't say what we say about gender and equality and all the things that they're promoting, if you don't come in line with us, we will shut you down. And if we do compromise, our salt has become saltless. It's lost its savor. See, it's a danger to compromise, and yet it's so easy to do. We know we shouldn't. We know it's a danger. We know what happens when the church gives in to the world. But it's, so, it's easier to do it than it is to stand firm, right? Because nobody wants to suffer. Listen to this. This is that high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden on the night that he was betrayed. He says this, this to the Father, I have given them who? The disciples, the followers that have stayed with him to the bitter end. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Think about that statement. I've always joked about the fact that It's kind of a sick joke that God saved me and left me. Think about that. If heaven is as good as the Bible describes it to be, and I firmly believe what the Bible says about it, if it's that good, why did he leave you and I here? So that we might be salt and light, agents of change, that we might impact the world for Christ because there are more who have yet to come to faith. But listen to what he says. I've left them in the world. I didn't ask you to take them out of the world. I asked you to leave them in the world and to keep them from what? The evil one. See, at the end of the day, this is where our battle lies. It's not necessarily with the culture. It's the one behind the culture. And every time you read the news, every time you get on social media and you see posts or you you see things that irritate you and infuriate you, and they usually take the form of a face, a person, a personality, Realize that behind it is the true enemy. It's Satan. And who is Jesus asking God to keep us from? The enemy. Not to listen to the subtle lies of the enemy that do come from people, governments, 
networks, social media, but ultimately it's a lie of the enemy that we have to have our eyes open so that we might understand just how we are being tempted to compromise all that we've been given. So why not compromise? Why are we not to do that? Well, here's what the scriptures tell us. Jesus says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is what he goes on to pray to the Father. By not compromising, that remaining salty and remaining bright as lights in the world, a very dark world, the world might believe that you sent me. Think about that. That's why we're here. As dark as everything seems to be right now, if, if we shine the way we're supposed to, if we're salty like we're supposed to be, then there will be some who believe what? That God sent Christ into the world to make a difference. That God changes lives. How will they know that? By looking at us. We are like the best walking advertisement of the truth of the gospel, or at least we should be. He goes on that the the world may know that you sent me. Isn't that fascinating? When we don't compromise, it is proof that God sent Jesus and that Jesus did what he said he was going to do, which is redeem sinners. We should be the best advertisement that the gospel truly works so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love this, and love them. I think this has two meanings. I think it means that that. God sent his son, and by virtue of these people placing, the disciples placing their faith in Jesus, they were, they enjoyed the love of God. But I think it's also talking about those yet to come. Because he goes on in the same prayer to say, I'm not just praying for these, the disciples, the current disciples, but all those yet to come. All those yet to come to faith, who will come to faith because the gospel is going to go out into the world through those disciples, and eventually through us. See, the Great Commission applies to you and I just like it did to them. John MacArthur says this, the weakness of the church is not that we're too uninvolved in the politics or administration of our society, but that we too easily absorb the false values of an unbelieving world. I had a conversation with one one of my adult kids the other day and talking about politics and talking about how do we fix this and how do we do this. and, uh, And I said... I do think we need to elect the right kind of people. But even the right kind of people, if they don't have strong convictions, will succumb to the pressure of Washington, of politics. If they are not strong enough, if they don't have the right support system, that, that monster, that machine will eat them alive. And we've seen it happen where people of good faith and good conviction get into that mess and become like the mess they went in to change. And so it's going to take far more than just one or two or three or even a dozen individuals. It, it's a change in the culture, and it begins in the hearts of all men, not just politicians. Because we're all bent to absorb and accept and accommodate to these false values, to give in, to, to give in to the pressure, to just go, okay, I, I'm just tired. I'm tired of fighting it. I'm just, I'm either going to go silent and say nothing, which is a form of accommodation, or I'm just going to believe what they believe, twist my values to meet their values. And it always starts with small baby steps, just like sin. No, nobody wakes up in the morning, you know, going, I'm going to be an adulterer. 
I'm going to be a drug addict. I'm going, to, I'm going to addict myself to porn. Nobody wakes up with that as a goal in mind, but with small, simple, little steps, you end up going down a path you never intended to take. And the same thing's true with compromise. It's subtle. It begins innocently. You just grow silent. You just, I don't want to speak up. I don't want to say anything. But if I say anything, I'm going to get lambasted. I'm going to get uh, sidelined. I'm going to be called a bigot. I'm going to be called this, that, and the other. And it, pretty soon you've just grown silent and you no longer are salt and you're no longer a light. You're, you're nothing. What did Jesus say? I would rather you, you would be hot or cold than lukewarm. Just, just pick a side. Speak up. Be who you were called to be. Because if you don't, it will ultimately lead to destruction. Now, guys, all of this is set up. And I know you're thinking, I thought we were going to study Daniel. We are going to study Daniel. But to get to Daniel, you've got to understand just how dangerous compromise can be. And how we are living in a day just like Daniel and just like Martin Niemöller and just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer when the, the, the world is pressing in on us to such a degree that if we're not careful, we are going to give in to the pressure and just acquiesce, accommodate, give in. And I think to a certain degree, the church today has lost that art of conviction. What does it mean to stay convicted no matter what anybody says? And there are, being, there are books being written now by Christians who are, who are even encouraging compromise. Just, you know, don't, don't stand against the culture Embrace the culture, and that way you can change the culture. But think about the stupidity of that. You know, you don't do that. You don't, you know, you don't change the culture by becoming like the culture, right? You, you have to stand opposed to it. Will you suffer that for that? Yeah. Niemöller did. Bonhoeffer certainly did. Daniel suffered for it. God spared him from death, but he still suffered. He still got thrown in the lion's den because he refused to compromise. And, and I love how the Apostle Paul talks about this constantly. He's, in every one of his letters, he warns the people to whom he's writing who are, for the most part, new believers living in what? A difficult culture because many of who he wrote to, because he was ministering in Gentile countries, they're Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ and they've left their pagan neighbors behind and their pagan neighbors don't like it and they are pressuring them and they're ostracizing them, and they're persecuting them. And look at the word, type of words he uses in every one of his letters. He says, stand firm. What does that mean? Don't backtrack. Don't get squeamish. D don't, don't let your knees shake and give in. He says this, guard. Guard what? Guard your faith. Guard one another. Guard the gospel with everything that you have. Don't let anybody rob you of it. Press on. Again, don't, don't give up and don't back up. Press on. Move forward at all times. Grow up. You know, how many times did your parents say that to you? I mean, I remember my mom, when are you going to grow up? What does she mean by that? She means you're not grown up. You don't act like a grown up. You don't act like who you should be. What does Paul say constantly to people? Grow up in your faith. Be strong, not weak, N not Weak need, but strong. Resist. If there was ever a time when we need to stand up and resist the culture, it's now. The question is, how do you do that? What does that look like? It's not just screaming on social media and spouting all your views about this, that, and the other. It's resisting by remaining firm to the gospel and firm in your faith.
persevere, be on, the, be on the alert, wake up, smell the coffee, understand what's going on. Don't be shocked by it. Don't be surprised by it, but be alert, be wary. The enemy's out there and don't lose heart. Pursue. Look at all of these words are powerful words. They're statements of action. Suffer. I hate this one, right? I can kind of get all, all over the others, but when he says suffer, I, I mm. but see, suffering is going to come if you do all the others. If you press on, if you resist, if you stand firm, you will suffer. Jesus even said, in this life, you will suffer. Why? Because you're salt and light, because the world hates you. And the enemy who's behind the world hates your ever-living guts. So be diligent. Don't give in. What's he trying to do? Encourage, lift up. Press these people to persevere to the bitter end. What did he do? Persevere to the bitter end. He ran the race to win. And that's what we need to do. Because we've been called to live distinctively different lives. See, I think one of the reasons people aren't attracted to the church is when they look at the church, they don't see us as any, very much different than them. I think that's why so many of our young people are leaving the church because they look at us as adults, as their parents, having been in the faith for many years, and our lives seem hypocritical. We say one thing, do another. We go to church and we act one way and we sing the songs and we pray and we give and then we go home and we're completely different people, it seems, at home. And our faith never seems to make a difference in the way we live our lives. And our kids look at that and go, it didn't seem to make any difference for them. Why would I pursue that? And then they hear from the culture, if you truly want to be accepted, if you truly want to be part of something, believe these things. And that's why this is so important. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Live your life. That, that word in the Greek is peripateo, walk, live your life, conduct yourself from morning till evening. Live your life in such a way that it's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says this, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What does that mean? Yes, love one another, but also love those who aren't like you. Love the lost, love sinners, love those who propagate things that you don't like. Love them, but be willing to love them by standing opposed to the falsehood they propagate. And that means, yeah, you, you will be hated and you will be despised, and if not, persecuted. He tells the Ephesians, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. The world shouldn't be able to look into the church and go, yeah, well, that, that place is full of pedophiles and adulterers and liars and cheats. And, and yes, those people do populate the church because we're all sinners, but we should be living lives of change. As Paul said, you used to be that way, but you've been redeemed. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart. You have been changed by God. So walk as children of the light. Live like you're supposed to live. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. And guys, you can take this and apply it however you want. But for me, I have to get practical and think, okay, what unfruitful works of righteousness or darkness am I partaking in that I shouldn't be? And it always comes down to, to the things like, what do I listen to? What do I read? What do I watch on TV? What, what shows do I binge watch? 
that are probably more of darkness than they are of truth, more demeaning to my faith than encouraging to my faith. What do you do? What do you watch? What do you participate in that might represent unfruitful works of darkness more than righteousness? See, this is where the rubber hits the road. If we're going to truly be salt and light and live distinctively different lives, it's going to have to take form in the way we live our lives so that they truly are different. Again, he tells the Ephesians, look carefully then how you walk, peripateo, how do you conduct your life, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, we, we, we know this is true, right? The days are evil. If you don't think the days are evil, I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how to help you, but I, th I think every guy in this room knows the days are evil. So what does he say? Be wise. Make the best use of the time. W what would be the best use of the time if we live in these evil days? I think it's going to be much more like a Martin Niemöller who is prophetically speaking to his peers saying, we got to hold firm. It's what Paul said to the Ephesians. You got to stand firm. You got to persevere. You got to pursue. You got to guard. You got to do all these things so that we might protect the integrity of the gospel at all costs. So finally, we get to Daniel. What does Daniel teach us about these things? I know of no, no other man in scripture quite like Daniel, Daniel who exhibits uncompromising convictions like he did. Amazingly. That's why he's almost a little ethereal to me, hard to understand, hard to reach, but I don't think it's impossible to look at his life and go, I can live that same way with the risks, with the danger, but I can be like a Daniel because Daniel was a godly man. I too can be a godly man. Well, what kind of man was he? Well, he's Hebrew, obviously. He was living in Jerusalem along with his family and his peers. He lived during the reign of three different kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, the, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been taken into captivity hundreds of years earlier. Judah's the last man standing. He's going to live through these three kings. Those three kings are going to get progressively worse. And he's a contemporary of Ezekiel. Daniel's a prophet. He's a prophet who prophesies in Babylon, whereas Ezekiel is prophesying back in Judah. But they're contemporaries. He's probably, as best as we can tell, of royal aristocratic blood. He came from money. He, he was not a poor peasant, but he came from the upper crust of the Jewish people living in Jerusalem because they were the ones that the Babylonians took captive. They left all the poor people back in Judah, and they took all the rich people back to the educated people back to Babylon. And he's 15 years old when that happens. Think about that. Think about when you were 15. For some of us, that's, that takes a lot of imagination. <laughs> but think about 15, you and your family are taken captive by the Babylonians. You've watched the besieging of your city. You've seen people starving to death for three years. They finally break in. They break down the walls. They destroy the entire city. They burn down your homes. They take you captive. They rape women. They do all these things. They kill thousands, tens of thousands of people. They burn the temple to the ground, and you get taken at 15 to Babylon. And he would have known about Babylon and everything about it. He would have known the decadence, the immorality. He knew what they stood for. He had seen the atrocities. And I love this from Clarence Edward McCartney. He says, Daniel was one that kept his station in the greatest of revolutions. 
reconciling politics and religion, business and devotion, magnanimity with humility, authority with affability, conversations with retirement, heaven and the court, the favor of God and the king. What's he saying? This kid had to learn how to navigate one of the most ungodly cities in the world under one of the most ungodly kings in the world because he immediately gets put in the king's employ and he's, he's forced to make some really tough decisions and to walk this fine line, compromise, stand firm. And he does it incredibly well. What's the context? Total compromise. Everything about them is pressuring them to compromise, to give in, to become like the Babylonians, to give up their Hebrew faith. They no longer have a temple. They can't make sacrifices. They no longer have the priestly system to guide them, to educate them. To Everything about them has fallen apart, and the pressure is on them to become like their captors, become like the world around them. See, this had been going on for years, long before Nebuchadnezzar came, long before the fall of Jerusalem, they had already been compromising to the world around them, right? They were giving in to false gods and these, these idols of the nations around them. And God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them, if you don't return to me, this is what's going to happen. See, Jeremiah the prophet had for 22 years warned these people, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. If you don't return, if you don't repent, God's going to destroy you. And he's going to use his servant, Nebuchadnezzar to do it. And eventually it took place. That's exactly what happened. See, these people had already been compromising. The defeat and the conquering of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple was just God's way of saying, I am done. It's over. You're going to be taken captive. Why? Because you've abandoned me and you no longer seek me. You no longer have any desire for me. You no longer fear me. You, you no longer understand my incredible love for you. And you no longer reverence me the way you should. And you've defiled the land that I gave you, the, the land of Canaan. I, I gave it to you. I provided it for you. I gave you victory over your enemies. And yet they served every God they could find. They were equal opportunity idolaters. Well, that's a good God. He seems like a great God. Let's worship that God. They didn't, they didn't leave God. They just added more gods to the equation. And guess what? God doesn't tolerate that. That's conviction. That's compromise. You're worshiping other gods than me. And even the priests were no longer serving him. They're serving these false gods. They're still offering sacrifices to Yahweh, but they've been deluded by their sacrifices to other gods. And it's a, it's, it's a pandemic. And even the kings, king after king after king, are worshiping false gods and encouraging the people to worship false gods. This is why the city fell and Judah was destroyed. And even the prophets, self-appointed prophets, declaring to speak on behalf of God, were declaring lies on behalf of God. And here's what's really sad to me. That is going on in pulpits all across this country today. Men who declare themselves to be prophets of God, pastors, teachers for God, are declaring falsehood in the name of God. It's exactly what was happening at that point in time. Here's what Jeremiah says. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay. 
My people have done two evil things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. That, that's an incredible statement from God about the, the state of the people of Israel at this time. They have left me and they've dug for themselves cisterns that don't provide what they think they're going to provide. Ultimately, guys, that's what idolatry is. It's, it's coming up with a substitute for God that can't deliver what only God can deliver. This is what they're accused of. And because of that, God's going to punish them. He, he warns of coming destruction. Jeremiah goes on in chapter 4. People of Judah, Jerusalem, surrender your pride and power. It, isn't it interesting that he, he could name so many different sins they've committed? He doesn't say idolatry. What does he say? Pride. Your pride and power that manifested themselves in idolatry. Change your hearts before the Lord, or my anger will burn like an unquenchable fire because of all your sins. The pride of your sins, the arrogance of your sins. Surrender your pride. Return. But... My people would not listen. They kept doing whatever they wanted, following the stubborn desires of their evil hearts. They went backwards instead of forward. From the day your ancestors left Egypt until now, I have continued to send my servants, the prophets, day in and day out. I have relentlessly begged you to return. But my people have not listened to me or even tried to hear. They have been stubborn and sinful, even worse than their ancestors. It got worse and worse and worse. And here's the chronology of what happened. 609 BC, King Josiah is killed by the Egyptians in battle. Jehoiakim, his son, becomes the vassal king of the Egyptians. 605, Nebuchadnezzar defeats the Egyptians. He invades Judah, besieges Jerusalem, and Daniel's taken captive. And then in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar invades and destroys Jerusalem, and Jeremiah is taken captive. But he's left to remain in Jerusalem. So all that God warned has taken place. And yet we see this young boy, 15 years old, ends up in Babylon working for the king in the palace, serving in that royal government, and he's firm in his convictions. I don't know what I was firm about at 15. It wasn't much of anything. I like baseball. I collected baseball cards. I love sports. I, I probably was uh, convicted to my, my friends and I think I was to my family. I wasn't so much to God, but I didn't have a whole lot of convictions at 15. This kid did, amazingly so. And we see in Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to blow through these. In Daniel chapter 1 is the first sign that he's, he's got uncompromising convictions when it comes to God because he is going to be pressured from day one. He's told as a new servant of the king that he's got to eat certain foods, and it's foods that he's not allowed to eat as a Hebrew. He's to drink wine that's been sacrificed to pagan gods. And don't you know at 15, he's not with his family. He's living in the court. He's being pressured to give in and to live like the world around him. At 15, I gave in to every peer pressure. If my friends said, look at this, I looked at it. If they said, talk like this, I talked like this. Whatever they said, I did because I just couldn't stand firm. I knew it was wrong, but I gave in anyway. At 15, he says no. He refuses to give in, and God honors him for it. He was devoted to God, and you're going to see it again in chapter 6. As he's now aged, and he's been in this situation for years, and he's told to worship something other than Yahweh. 
his peers who are not Hebrews, they're Babylonians, but they're also in this training school. And they look at him and they see him as living differently and they start pressuring him. And they actually go to the leadership and say, this guy refuses to worship the way we worship. And they put him in a jam. And he's told that you can no longer pray to your God. You've got to pray to our gods and you've got to worship our idols. And yet he prays to his God publicly, openly, where everyone can see it. And he refuses to give in to the king's demand. He trusts God. He's, he's aged, he's matured, he's grown up physically and even spiritually. It says, when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs, upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. Why is that important? Everybody could see him. He's witnessing to the world around him. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. In spite of the fact, if you do this, you will die. Compromise or die. He's 66 years old at this point. He's been there a long time. And nowhere along the way has he ever given, has he ever compromised. 15, 66, nothing's changed. Pressure's still there. The pressure to compromise is all around him, but he refuses to do so. And then you come to Daniel chapter 9. And this is where we see that he truly is a man after God's own heart. It's 583 BC. A lot of time has gone by. He's in his early 80s. I'm in my 60s. I'm not in my 80s. But this is how I want to be in my 80s. I want to be this kind of man, regardless of what happens in this country. New king, Darius, he's on the throne. Daniel's been there 67 years, and here's what's going to happen. It's going to reveal just what kind of man he is. Now, I know men in their 80s who, while they may not admit that they've compromised, they have kind of given in. They've retired. They have stopped living for the Lord like they used to live. They're, they're kind of coasting, waiting to the end. You don't see that in this guy's life. No coasting. He is in the word. And we see this in Daniel chapter nine. He's reading the scroll of Jeremiah. He's gotten his hands on the writings of Jeremiah. His peer, who's back in Jerusalem, who is writing the words of God out and he's gotten a copy of it. So rather than being retired, he's studying the word of God, all that he had at that time. And it's pretty fascinating. He's reading the words of a man who's being told by God to tell the people of Judah, you can still repent. There's still hope. Here's what Jeremiah is gonna tell him. He's gonna warn him that this thing, this, this deportation, this exile has a timestamp on it. It's only going to last so long. And a result of reading what Jeremiah writes, Daniel begins to pray and fast because he's reminded of the reason they're there in the first place. See, one of the reasons we read the Word of God is it tells us the state of things. We shouldn't be surprised at the world. We should know that this is what happens when people reject God. So don't be surprised, but understand What's God's plan? That's what he's going to learn. Here's what he reads in chapter 25 of Jeremiah. Because you have not listened to me, people of Israel, I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar. I will bring them against this land and its people and against the surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy you. Who lived through this at 15? Daniel. 
So he's reading this and he realizes it all happened. But Jeremiah goes on to say it will only last 70 years. He's now been in Babylon how long? 67 years. He may not be the brightest bulb in the box, but it doesn't take much math to go 67, 70. Huh, we're almost there. This thing's almost over. And he's encouraged by it because he looks around and he sees everybody he knows is pretty much compromised. They've given in. Their culture has been destroyed by this captivity. And the people are beginning to cry out because they are so tired of the culture in which they live. Almost like Lot living in Sodom. But he's encouraged to know it's going to end. God has a plan. Jeremiah writes in chapter 29, you will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. I will bring you home again, for I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a hope and a future. See, what's amazing about this is he reads it and he realizes that God is going to redeem his rebellious people in spite of them. God is going to carry out what he said he was going to do, and the 70 years is almost up, and he's encouraged by that word. And he's driven to his knees because this is what he read in Jeremiah 29. In those days, when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, and I will end your captivity. See, he reads this, which was written prior by Jeremiah, and he realizes, you know what? I'm going to pray. I'm going to go to my God, and I'm going to count on the fact that he is faithful. When you pray, you will find me. I will hear you. And here's what he does. He acknowledges God. He's great. He's awesome. He keeps his covenant. He maintains his loving kindness. He is righteous. He's compassionate. He's forgiving. He brought us out of Egypt. He can bring us out of this place. God is great, and he will do what he says he could do, and he confesses. He confesses the sins of his people. We have sinned and done wrong. We've acted wickedly. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets. We've not obeyed the voice of our God. He just confesses what he knows to be true. And guys, I think that's what we need to do is confess the sins, not of the world, but of the church. We have compromised. We have given in. We've not stood for you. We're not salt. We're not light. We don't want to live like this anymore. And then he pleads for mercy. Let your anger and your wrath turn away. We don't present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. God, would you enter in and do what only you can do? Hear, forgive, pay attention, act for your own sake. So here's what we learned about this guy. He's a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he had a fear of God. These are those three things we looked at for weeks. He knew how much God hated sin. He knew their captivity was due to sin. And he knew that God expected obedience. He understood God. He had a fear of God. He understood God's love for him. He knew his God, his God was faithful. He knew God's loving kindness was perfect. He does not ever fall out of love with his people. And he knew God would ultimately forgive and would deliver and restore. And finally, he was totally devoted to God. Despite anything around him, he always turned to God for help. He put God's will first and he wanted what God wanted. So here's your questions. How does Daniel's godly life teach us not to compromise our convictions? And how do you plan to stand firm rather than fear? It's gonna get worse before it gets better. How do you stand firm in the midst of it? Much of what Daniel accomplished, he did on his own. Why is the body of Christ vital and how can it strengthen our endurance? What I mean by that is 
He didn't have a whole lot of help in this, guys. He wasn't surrounded by a church, a body of Christ. He had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But for the most part, he did this alone, and you have help. Why is the body of Christ so important? Finally, I want you to close in prayer, asking that God would make your table a band of godly brothers that will impact the world for Christ. I long to see us make a difference. I want to make a difference. I want us to make a difference, but we're going to need God's help to do so. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. Uh, Thank you for this study of godliness. May it be more than just academic. May we walk out of here encouraged that we too can go to your word and we know that you are going to make all things right. We're here for a reason. This season will only last so long. And while it may be dark and while it may, may be foreboding and discouraging, Father, we worship a great God and you have a plan for this world. And you've left us here that we might be salt and light and agents of change. May we be who you've called us to be. May we be the godly men you created us to be so that we too might make a difference like Daniel. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.